grit for the day. Lived experience from influencers who overcome with CEO and founder Thomas Lee Johnson. All right. Hey, welcome to Grit for the Day. With me today is Professor Vera Katz, who is a former professor of Howard University Department of Theater Arts, where she taught acting and directing for 32 years. She has taught notable, notables, Debbie Allen, Anthony Anderson, Chadwick Boseman, Corey Hawkins, Taraji Henson, Felicia Rashad, <laughs> Frederica Whitfield. I mean, uh, the who's who uh, of of Hollywood. She is. Uh, she actually actually produced uh, at the Moss Hart under Jill Hyman on Broadway. She has a BFA in theater arts from Brooklyn College, an MFA in directing and acting from Boston University, and she has studied film at both the University of Southern California and the University of California Extension. Uh, her credentials go on, <laughs> but I want to start the show. <laughs> Uh, she's produced uh, both nationally and internationally. Uh, I'm so excited to have Professor Katz with us. Uh, she's also an author and has a work, a uh, profound book that she's going to be bringing uh, to us through Amazon uh, in April of this year. Please welcome Professor Vera Katz. Thank you so much for having me, TJ. I'm very appreciative. Excellent. And I'm excited to be with you. Happy to have you. All right. Can we see that book? Okay. This is this is the original copy. Wow. Walk, a toolbox of techniques for actors and directors. Felicia Rashad on the bottom. She's written the foreword. Excellent. Now, I've just finished the revised copy, which will uh, be available on Amazon, I would think in the spring. Uh, there's a lot more to do with the revised copy in terms of updating photographs. And so, um, and, and people's credits. Uh, yeah. Fortunately, all my students are working and yes. so they keep adding to their credits. <laughs> but I'm excited for people to read this book because uh, the second half, it's in two parts, and the second half is tools and techniques for actors and directors. I want to clarify something in your wonderful introduction. I've never produced anything. I only direct, and okay. I've directed many, many shows. Nevertheless, um, the, the toolbox is for both actors and directors, Excellent. and the techniques are based originally on Stanislavski and uh, all of my teaching has been Stanislavski. But over the 56 years that I've been teaching, and I also taught for 22 years at the Duke Ellington School of the Arts in Washington, DC, 22 years there, 32 years at Howard and many years of private teaching along the way. So um, I, Cullied and refined and added many new techniques to the book, many Excellent. new techniques that actors can use and uh, I think that are important. I'm most interested in the quality of acting improving Excellent. and 
I want young people not simply to pick up a script and emote and get an emotional feeling. You know, you know, TJ, you can't do six or seven performances a week or, or, or eight takes in a studio by just emotionally using your emotions. Right. Run dry after a while. Yeah. So as there is a technique in studying piano and studying ballet, uh, I've developed a technique for acting. Professor Katz, how does your technique diverge from Stanislavski's? Well, I've added, okay. First of all, Stanislavski talked about bits. And now, of course, it was translated from the Russian. When he came over with the Moscow Art Theater uh, early in the 30s, he kept talking about bits. So I've translated that to mean beats. And beats are units of thought and not units of feeling. Because I don't talk about emotion. I talk about what is the topic of the beat, the unit that the playwright is addressing. Is the playwright talking about his college years in this section of the play? Is the character talking about her children? Is the character talking about her fight to get a job? And then I break that down into verbs. Now that's Stanislavski, objectives. And then we move from that into the win or lose concept that comes out of Michael Shirtloff, who was a wonderful acting teacher in California for years, the late Michael Shirtloff. Mm -hmm. And so if you're fighting to get a job, that's your verb, and you get one, then the emotion is triggered. Right. The emotion comes as the result of what you're fighting for. Mm. You don't start with the emotion, TJ. You start with what do I want? For example, if I don't feel at the end of this interview I did a good job, I will feel depressed and the emotion will be sad and I'll be upset. On the other hand, the opposite is true. Right. So that's Michael's shirt off. Then I've added each beat is a fact, topic. Nobody talks about that. Mm. That's true to the playwright. So, or the writer, screenwriter. So the actor starts getting an emotion and he strays away from, yes, but what is the playwright talking about? Now, what the playwright is talking about and those facts all add up to the theme, the message. Yes. What the story is about. Right. And I want the audience to begin to look at not just the story, but what's the message for me? The audience has to get, they they have to do a takeaway. Yes. Home, like you do from a restaurant, a take home of what the playwright is trying to tell us. Mm, That's really good. That's really good. And so you stay... You stay true to the author. Right. That's very important. Now, the other thing I've added in the last five years or so are hallway phrases. Hallway phrases are the phrases that take you, for example, the other thing I've just added the last five years, that's a hallway phrase. It's a setup. Okay. And we go through it 
to get to the major point. Yes. Actors tend to rush the hallway phrase. They don't think it's important. Mm. So, for example, in Wilson, in August Wilson, that great playwright, he will say something about, well, I just came up from North Carolina where I was picking tobacco, but I needs me a woman. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. So I'm collapsing what he says, but he does say that. I'm paraphrasing it. Well, actors feel that's not important. The whole scene is about the guy and the girl and getting the girl. And they throw that in the garbage, you know? Right. But Wilson wrote it to let you know the history of the character, the backstory. Yes. And that he's a physical guy Mm -hmm. and that he's been working the fields. Right. And that he's not at ease in the city. And then there's some history there, the great migration from the South that Blacks went through. Yes. So actors that always want to throw that away rather than cherish it. Mm. They want to get to the hot part, you know? Yeah, yeah. Am I going to make the chick? Am I going to get the girl? Right, right. And so those hallway phrases are very important. The setup is very important. Not to be right. The other thing I've added is time. Mm-hmm. Water says in uh, Water says in Soldier's Story. Yeah. Water says uh, uh, back in the day uh, something about not liking the Geechees. Back yeah. in the day. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, back in the day is the past. Then he says, and I'm going to get that boy. That's the future. Mm. We talk about the past differently. Right. Our voice changes. Yes. Uh, we, it's slower because we have to grasp it. We have to pull it up into the computer of our brain. Right. It's not there automatically. Yeah. We talk about the future with wishes and hopes and dreams. Soon's I'm going to be free in so many plays like that. And so the person is wishing and, and, and hoping and desiring rather than saying, soon's I'm going to be free. That's in the present. Right. So we do the past. We do the present. We do the future. And a, a good writer does that. Yes. A good writer has only three hours max in a film and three hours max on stage, if they have that long in theater, right. yeah. to give you the character's past. Mm-hmm. We see their present. Yes. And then we want to know their future. Right. So the actor has to adjust the voice, the tempo rhythms, the sounds, the pace. Mm. So that's important. Absolutely. In Professor- Jitney, let me just add. Uh In Chitney, the character will say, well, I don't hold nothing against you in them 20 years, Dad, that I was in prison. Mm -hmm. I was in jail and you didn't come to see me. Well, he was there 20 years. You have to make a big deal about that word. Well, actors who aren't trained just want to get emotional at that. They're Mm -hmm. angry at their father. And then the, the audience misses that the character has been in jail for 20 years and his father didn't come to see him. Right. 
So numbers are very important. I talk about numbers a lot, you know? Yeah, grandma, yeah. Uh, grandma uh, in, and this will be the last thing I'll say about this, uh, Mama in Raisin is waiting for the $10,000 check. Yes. Coming in the mail. Uh-huh. That's a lot of money in those days. Right. I've gone to productions where people will say, Mama will say, go downstairs, boy, speaking to her grandson, and get me that $10,000 check. And I have to say, is that a lot of money? Is that? (laughs) You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. So numbers are important. Anyway, Mm. these are the techniques I've added and others. others. Marvelous. Well, listen, we cannot wait to grab a copy of a toolbox, uh, a cat's walk uh, from Amazon in in April. Uh, Thank you for sharing that with us. We, we, on our show... We love to talk about influencers, people like you, Professor Katz, who have overcome adversity. Uh, I think I could say this safely. Uh, You are familiar with setback and uh, struggle. Uh, I think early on in your life, before you knew you wanted to become the uh, professional that you are, you internalized struggle and adversity. What are your early memories of coming to grips with adversity and struggle? Well, I grew up in a Jewish community in Brooklyn. I am of the Jewish faith. And it was very clear to me early on that we were marginalized and not liked, you know, as a child, you want to be liked. Yes. And there were plenty of incidents that happened where we weren't liked. We, my family, my father. My father used to walk his sisters home from school every day. He was the only brother in the family Mm. because his sisters would be thrown rocks. Rocks would be thrown at his sisters Mm. because he was Jewish. Mm. Now, that's my father in the 30s and the 20s, 20s and 30s. So he was always getting into fights because he felt he had to defend his sisters. Wow. Well, I would hear that story as a kid over and over, you know, which was a story that I'd say, well, what's the matter with us? Now, I was born in 36. Hitler was coming to power stronger and stronger in Germany at that time. Mm-hmm. And that was, of course, affecting all of the people in my community. Right. Um, so I was hearing hushed whispers conversations about what was going on in Germany. We had cousins there who, mm. were, who eventually got killed. Mm. And they were talking about people being burned in ovens. And at eight years old, I translated that as, well, we had an oven in our kitchen. So I remember trying to get my legs into the oven. I was always short. I still am. Oh, my goodness. Figure out how to get into the oven. How could you get into the oven in the kitchen? Oh, my goodness. You know, until my mother one day saw me struggling. I did this more than once and, of course, carried on about it. So that was already the mentality of being different. Mm. And we all know what that's like, you know, African-Americans, uh, 
uh, internalize that. Right. Asians do. We all do. And so um, that was immediately a sense of being marginalized. I, I would have to stop my father when I had my children uh, from telling them stories like, why do people don't, why do people dislike Jews? And I used to say, grandpa, you can't keep saying that to these young children. Right. So that's where he was. He had never quite worked it out and it's a difficult thing to work out. Absolutely. So um, I was already aware of that. Now, fast forward to when I was working in New York with Morris Hart, of mm-hmm. course, he was Jewish. And so, and he was busy working on My Fair Lady when I came in to work with him. Right. And so, of course, I learned a lot about him. But the topic of Jewish didn't come up and nobody was, you know, disturbing me then. Well, when I moved to Howard, right, got the job at Howard. Yes. A real fluke. I think it was God's plan. But anyway, when I got the job at Howard, I decided it wasn't a good thing to say I was Jewish. It was hard enough for people to deal with my color. Right. What made you choose Howard? I didn't choose it. Okay. My then husband, my first husband said, "Uh, we're going to need to make some more money. And because I'm going back to school at Georgetown to get a political science degree, he had already had a law degree. Right. And so we need some more money. So this this directing you're doing in community theater in Virginia and in Maryland, it's not going to cut it. You've got to get a job. <laughs> so I thought, well, you know, I have my master's and I, I want to work in theater. I want to do this. I love it. Right. So lo and behold, I got a call to be a... Um, adjudicator at the one act DC Washington DC uh, uh, theater festival. Yes. And I would be an adjudicator. Okay. They had seen my plays. I had directed a number of things around town mm-hmm. Well, I was honored. And so I went and I sat on the uh, stage with all the other adjudicators. The one of the other adjudicators was Alfred Dean Brown. Alfred. Wow. <laughs> she was an actress uh-huh. and a very intelligent woman. Uh-huh. And she said to me after, at the end of the day, well, I love your critiques and uh, I see that you have a lot of background. Do you have your master's? And I said, yes. She said, well, my husband is chairman of the theater department at Howard University. <laughs> And they're looking for they're looking for a, a, a teacher. Now it was August, TJ. What? And if you know anything about academia, if they don't have a teacher in August, they're desperate. Yes. She said, "Go down there, and I'll tell my husband about you, William T. Brown, mm-hmm. and uh, see if he's interested in hiring you." Mm. So I got myself together. I fixed up my resume. I went down and met Mr. Brown. And he said, what are you going to know about black people? Now, it was 1969. What? You know what happened in 68, of course. Of course. He had been assassinated. And 
I say that because as you drive down to Howard at that time, yes. all the buildings were decimated on Georgia Avenue. Right. And this was the atmosphere I was walking into. People were angry, Amazing. as they should be. Amazing. And oh. very upset, as they should have been. Right. And why did they want me? Well, oh. he said, we'll try you. Okay. Well, when he asked me what I knew about black people, I said, well, I worked with a few African-Americans in graduate school in plays, and I directed them. I even dated a guy, and uh, that's about the extent of it. I have to admit that I have a lot of reading to do. And he said, okay, I like that answer. Yeah. And he said, are you going to read? I said, yes, I certainly am. And he said, well, we'll try you out for the year. And off I went into the classroom. For a year. <laughs> At the end of the year, he said, thank you so much. The students seem to like you very much, but we can't use you anymore. I fought, TJ. What? I fought to stay. Why? Why did I want to stay? I was learning so much. Mm. You know... White people don't, don't know a lot. They are dumb. I was dumb. <laughs> there was a lot. I, I say in the book, white people think they have the answer to the everything, everything, and they don't. Yeah. And I didn't. I was learning so much from my students. Yes. At the same time that they were learning from me. Right. Now let's go to adversity. Yes. My first group of students in the classroom were Felicia Ayers Allen later known as Felicia Rashad. Your first students? They were seniors. Linda Gravatt, who's an actress in New York. Petronia Paley, who's done a lot of Shakespeare acting and has her, an, her own acting school in New York. Now she has it. And who else? There was a fourth. I can't remember the fourth. Uh -huh. And they were, they were divas. Yeah. Which, which was a word I didn't know at that time either. <laughs> and they, they were divas. And um, well, it's not a word that white people use. It, it was the word that you guys are using then. And I was saying to myself, what's a diva? I have to find that out. Anyway, they gave me the blues. Alicia <laughs> dropped my class. Now, note she's right, written the forward in my book. Exactly. She writes about that in the book. Wow. She writes about that in the forward. Now you too can learn from Vera Katz. And I signed her drop slip and looked in her beautiful eyes and said, well, maybe we'll meet again. I'm sorry that you haven't enjoyed the class, but maybe we'll meet again. She came back next semester. <laughs> because she heard that she was going to learn a lot. Wow. That's what she heard from the other divas in the class. Wow. And so that was the first test, right? Amazing. That's, that's adversity. <laughs> that was adversity. Now, that went on for five years. And I was in the closet that I was Jewish. I was just white, and that was bad enough. Bad. Professor Katz, how did you, what was your coping skill to deal with the trial basis from the hiring professor? Yeah. The being dropped by star students and then just you, it seems like you were on this constant cycle of adversity and constant, challenge. Constant. And 
kind. How'd you cope with that? I was told I couldn't direct on main stage. I had a master's in directing because I wasn't of the culture. I was wow. told that in front of the whole faculty. Wow. Well, here's how I cope with it. I knew why people were angry and they deserve to be angry. Mm-hmm. I understood that. Mm-hmm. I identified with that. I knew what it was like to be dispossessed, ignored, damaged, uh, whatever. So I knew that. I couldn't judge that. Mm. So my color was what they were angry at. They had every right to be angry at my color. Mm. I still believe that to this day. You have every angry to be angry at white people if you're black. Mm. So I understood that. And what I was going to prove to them was, yes, I was white, but I cared. Yes, I was white, but I understood. Yes, I was white, and you were going to disrespect me and say nasty things, but I could handle it. And in time, you would come to know that, as Dr. King said so brilliantly, it's the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Yes. And yes. He, said, he said that in his marvelous speech in 1963. Yes. By the way, I was at the March of Washington that year. Uh, we went, uh, my then husband and I, and I heard him say that, and I never forgot that. So I knew in time it would change. Right. And I believe that God had put me there for a purpose, Mm. not just to help or aid or improve them, but to improve me, me. Right. Right. And I was learning every day and I was determined to stay. So that was, go ahead. Yeah. Just, I mean, there's a certain, I don't need to tell you this, but I'm going to say this out loud. There's a certain level of, ego and arrogance in the entertainment industry Uh that I mean people carry their their rank and their status on their shoulders so if you already have a BFA and an MFA from Boston I mean you and you've worked on Broadway and you've already directed around uh, multiple multiple stages there's a certain level of frankly earned uh sense of entitlement I, I, I use that in a and maybe entitlement's too strong of a word a sense of you deserve respect let's put it that way you've earned respect and you deserve respect with your credentials with 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 what you've done so you were coping with the adversity knowing that you had a high sense of self-worth and you were worthy of respect and honor that you were not necessarily getting. That takes humility. That takes a sense of steadfastness on purpose that I just wanna highlight and honor you for. Because because of your steadfastness and your humility, you enabled and empowered decades of African-American actors at Howard with your unique perspective. I want to go back to the 1960s, specifically 63, 
you and your then husband went to the March on Washington. Why? Why were you there? Well, I was always politically active. Okay. Because of of my background, my backstory, you right. know. Right. So at Brooklyn College, which was my undergraduate school, right. We had a brilliant teacher mm. who taught us Shakespeare and playwriting. In mm. fact, he's written a book that I understand people still use, although it might be out of print. It's a Bernard Grabanier, G-R-E-B-A-N-I-E-R, and it's called Playwriting. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I came to school one day, and he had been fired, and nobody understood why. Well, it was the period of the House on Un-American Activities. Oh, wow. And people like Grabanier and people who cared about, you know, social problems and economic problems of other people had joined the communist party that at the time was the only place to join mm. could be active mm. so he was being investigated and he took the fifth from the house on american activities now i hope your, your listeners know how many brilliant people were blackballed because of the House on Un-American Activities, Zero Mostel, Paul Robeson, Paul Robeson, oh, definitely, Arthur Miller, yes. so James Baldwin. Yes. So, so when I heard that, I said, oh, we have to organize. So that was the beginning of my political activism. Amazing. So we organized and we handed out flyers on the quad and we carried on, but he never came back. Mm. And I called him. And, and told him how much he had meant to me. And he told me that I had a bright future, which I always remember. Mm. And then I never saw him again. In any case, after that, I, you know, was active. So we joined a temple, which is akin to a synagogue, only less, less orthodox. Okay. And why do I bring that up? We had young children. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we, we were on the social action committee. Right. So we did a lot of stuff on the social action committee, my, my ex-husband and I. And then eventually we became chairs of it. So I was already politically active. Okay. So why wouldn't I go to the March on Washington? You know, that was yeah. why I was there. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And while you were there, mm -hmm. I remember some important events unfolded. And you met some, some very notable people while you were there? Well, we were walking towards, we were trying to get a good spot. Again, we were both short. I, I was still short and my, my ex-husband was. So we wanted to get a good spot so we could see what was going on. We were walking on, on the um, ellipse around the reflecting pool. And I saw a man of color uh, under a tree and he was sweating and he looked like he was in trouble. So I went over and I said, can I help you, sir? And he looked up and I heard, looked at his face and I said, he looks familiar. And then I heard his voice and he said, no, thank you, little lady. And it was Paul Robeson. 
Mm. I just rocked back on the grass, which was uneven, almost fell. You know how grass is. And, and I said, oh, my goodness, Mr. Robeson. And he said, yes. And he smiled. <laughs> like he was pleased that somebody of my color recognized him. Right. I don't know. That's what I read into it, TJ. That's yeah. what his eyes said to me. Okay? Right, right, right. And I said, what an honor, sir. But you shouldn't be sitting on the grass. And I started to call my husband. And he said, no, no, I'm resting. It's fine. I said, do you need some water? He said, no, I have water. And then he showed me behind him. He pulled out some water and, yeah. and used his handkerchief to move the sweat off. He said, I'm resting. He mm. said, it's all right. He said, you go ahead. Mm. You go ahead, little lady, and thank you. Thank you so much. Praise God. Mm. And I said, well, praise you, Mr. <laughs> Robeson. Praise you. And I walked, you know, I kept looking back. And then he was, when I looked back later on, as I was listening to everybody up there, mm -hmm. um, what's his face was speaking, uh, um, City Poitier or? No, uh, uh, Harry Belafonte. Harry Belafonte, okay. And he, he was speaking, and so I was listening to him, and then I looked back, and he was no, Robeson was no, Mr. Robeson was no longer under the tree. Right. So that was, you know, my, and I learned, later learned, I put it together through news reports that night through the newspaper, that he had already spoken. Oh, okay. And okay. so he was resting, I guess, after that, and okay. being up there on the podium was was very crowded you know yeah yeah wow that's amazing uh and obviously that's a treasured memory <laughs> it certainly certainly was you know i just learned later here's an addendum by looking up burt lancaster's bio uh -huh. watching him in the leopard which is a brilliant film okay. a classic uh european film with him as the star I just learned that he had spoken on the March in Washington. Burt Lancaster. Yes, and that he had given a lot of money. Wow. And he had also given a lot of money to AIDS, and he had been very, very helpful to Montgomery Clift. Mm. And, um, and what's who was the other person? Rock Hudson. Yes, very, very helpful to them both. Mm -hmm. They were friends, and he supported them. The, the gay movement early, mm. early on. Who thought of Burt Lancaster that way? Right, right. <laughs> he had spoken. They, so they obviously let him speak because they knew he was, you know, whatever. Right. Yeah. These are things you learn when you look at Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we know that after the March on Washington, and we flash forward to your time at Howard, 1969. And uh, then, I was then I was fired again. <laughs> Tell us about that. 1976. Yeah. Then I, I hired a lawyer. Mother uh -huh. said, if people don't want you, Vera, you shouldn't go back. That was mother on the telephone. <laughs> and then I said, I think I'm going to hire a lawyer. And then mother said, well, what do mothers say? They don't want their children in harm's way. Right. Mother said, well, hire a Jewish lawyer. I said, thank you, mother. And I hired a black lawyer. <laughs> and he won for me. Awesome. Awesome. 
Nevertheless, he called me the night before. This, this is the ridiculousness of the whole thing. He called me the night before the, um, we, were, we were going to a, uh, not a settlement, we were going to a hearing, right. which was in the administration building at Howard. Mm-hmm. And he called me and he said, and I wasn't a professor then. See, in other words, after you're there seven years, you either go up or out. Yes. So they were getting me out. Got it. Mm. So he said, we're something Jewish. And I said, Larry, what exactly do you have in mind? And he said, well, how about a beaded sweater? Now, you know, it's so hilarious what we think of each group, isn't it? You know? It is hilarious. <laughs> you know, it's like telling an Asian, bring some chopsticks, you know? I mean, <laughs> so I said, well, Larry, I don't own a beaded sweater. And then there was a long silence. <laughs> it was an assumption. And I said, but I'll wear something non-flamboyant because, right. of course, I was in the arts and I wore... You know, so I saw, and I wore a little gray suit with a pin on it. To, but he meant well. Yeah. And my mother meant well. So we had the settlement, not the settlement, we had the hearing. Yes. Now, here's what happened at the hearing. Very interesting. My, my, ref, my, um, well, not references, my, my, um, uh, the stu- my petition the students had signed a petition yes there were about 55 students on it wow my evaluation by the faculty was top notch yes my evaluation by the faculty was uh, by the students was top notch right it was the chairman Ooh. and he had a letter in my file now if the chairman doesn't want you you're finished <clears throat> the letter in my file was I had left the window open in August. It was a hot day and right. I'm on the first floor. And by doing that, I had put uh, property, university property in jeopardy. Are you serious? And then the other paragraph that saved me was, and she's not of the ethnic. So she's taking a job that somebody else should have. Mm. Mm. Okay. So we went to this hearing and the lawyer said that the Howard University lawyer, uh oh, this is, this is HR. I mean, yeah, this is racism. We, and then lo and behold, my Larry lawyer produces a folder. And he puts it over the desk and he gives it to the dean who's writing. Right. And she opens the the folder and gets ashen and she passes it to the lawyer. And the lawyer says something about, we're going to have to settle here. I I heard the word settle. Right. And I said, Larry, what's in the folder? And he said, quiet, quiet, quiet. So I didn't know what was in the folder. So the dean then says, and this insulted me, how much money do you want? Oh, my goodness. Well, of course, I took it to mean, you know, we have, all of us have our own, what's the word? Each group has, you know, certain things you shouldn't say to them. 
Right. So how much money do you, I took it as a Jewish slur. She right. was going to buy me out and I was just in it for the money. Right. So I said, I don't, it's not the money. I don't want the money. I want to go back and teach these students. I like them mm. and they're learning from me and I'm learning from them. Yes. And I, I was almost brought to tears. Wow. At which point my lawyer says, well, now about the money. <laughs> <laughs> Funny, isn't it? Oh, gosh. <laughs> this is Miss Katz wants the money for the year that she's not been there. That whole year, she couldn't take a job and oh, she couldn't God. have any income. So, of course, she wants the money. Oh, and, he, and he knocks me under the table. Okay. <laughs> so that was funny, wasn't it? Okay. That's hilarious. So she says, finally, well, we'll let you go back, but you have to be reviewed by the faculty. And it's up to, the, well, of course, I had already been reviewed and the faculty had said wonderful things. Exactly. And so if they approve, then I guess we'll have to, says the dean, we'll have to reinstate you. Oh, gosh. Have, you know, very, very nice, like <laughs> clearly not wanting me. And like my lawyer looks at me like, do you really want to go back to this situation? <laughs> And I said, yes, I'll take, oh, you'll have to take your chances. I said, yes, I'll take my chances. And at the end of the year, they'll review you. Well, of course, the end of the year, I was reinstated. Wow. Now, I learned something else then. And this is about judging others. And I tell it to many people who need to learn how not to judge others. During that whole year of 1976, TJ, Nobody on the faculty contacted me. And nobody in the whole College of Fine Arts, the art teachers that I was friendly with, the music teachers who knew me, I had done uh, cooperative ventures with them. Nobody contacted me. No one? None of your peers? No, nobody. And nobody wrote me a note. And I felt betrayed. Okay. Oh, my goodness. I felt betrayed. But mm. here's what I learned. As soon as I was reinstated and back on the campus, my mailbox was stuffed. And the secretary called me up and said, you have to clean out this mailbox. Everything's falling out. Wow. What was in it were gifts, invitations for lunch, invitations to come to their home for dinner. And what, what was in the letters was this. This is what I learned. My daughter has remission of tuition in the sciences, and she's on the other side of the campus. And I couldn't, I couldn't chance that I would stand up for you. I couldn't chance that she would lose her remission. Oh, my goodness. Or from someone else. We just bought a house. And we took a loan, and I really can't afford to lose my job. Mm. So I began, I got a lot of notes like that. And then it was told to me over lunches and dinners and so forth. The art teacher made a piece of uh, uh, ceramics for me to wear on my neck. I mean, it was just overflowing with caring. Wow. So my judgments of... They, nobody likes me and they all hate me and they're not going to stand up for a person of my color. 
and blah, blah. All of that that I was thinking and that I was crying about, crying about, was the wrong judgment. So, you know, I was too, it, it was my judgments which should not have been, and I've learned to, the whole thing about turn the other cheek, I've learned to say, well, there must be a reason that person is saying this, you know? Yeah, yeah. And Professor the fact, yeah. yeah. I, 1976, that sounds like that was a really hard year for you. And I ended up with a professorship. Awesome. And I went back. <laughs> and I had a reputation that I never wanted, and here it was. I'd walk down the hall and I'd hear, oh, that's Cats. She's tough. Don't mess with her. Oh, don't mess with cats. She won against the universe. Don't. So everybody decided I was tough. And I thought, okay, I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Katz, when you were in the the low moment of 76, when you could, you weren't working. No. You couldn't be a professor or, you know, an instructor at Howard, your passion. You were potentially, I'm assuming you were alone during some of those moments during yeah. 76. What were the tools? I mean, you you have you wrote a book about toolbox. What yeah. were the tools right. that you used to overcome, to cope, to inspire yourself, to fight and to keep going? What what did you do? How okay. did you how did you get there? Okay. Well. My lawyer told me, unfortunately he's deceased, but my lawyer told me, don't give any interviews. It will go against you, right? Now that was important Mm -hmm. because lo and behold, WAML arrives at my home with lights and a boom camera. What? Ready to interview me. And I remembered what my lawyer said. But to answer your question, their questions were so racially terrible. Mm. You've been betrayed by black people, don't you think? Do you have anything to say about them? Wow. And the more questions I got that were that way, the telephone would ring Mm. and, and radio program from New York would call and ask me about um, why do you want to stay when you're not wanted there? Uh, These people, these people. I mean, I I was getting so much racial slurs against people who are black. Wow. But that was my toolbox. Mm. That said to me, wait a minute. No, I was never scared there. No, I wasn't betrayed by black students. No, uh, it wasn't that that people hated me. Right. And so I said, I've got to stay. Mm. I've got to stay and let them know. Now, I also found out something else. I found out because the lawyer was digging. Right. That, remember I told you they hired me because they needed a faculty member? Yes. Well, those divas in the first class had had another white teacher before me. Oh. 
and they fired her. Wow. Got it? Wow. And now what Felicia says about me on interviews when she's, I mean, she brings, I credit Vera, I'm paraphrasing, with learning about our culture and trying to be relevant. So here's what I did when I said I was reading. I read slave speeches, enslaved speeches. Mm. Frederick Douglass. Harry exactly, yeah, Smith. yeah. And I brought them to class and I mm. said, let's work on these. Let's work on the beats here. Let's work. I've started to find any plays that were written by Africa. There weren't too many at that time. Uh, people will tell you in the business there were very few. Right. But I dug up some Theodore Ward, the, the great white fog. I, I dug up a few of them. Then mm-hmm. I dug up I dug up West Indian plays. And wow. Felicia was thrilled because the first play they finally let me direct on main stage that I did there had Linda Gravatt. Debbie Allen was in charge of the dancing and all the children in it. Yeah. And Felicia Rashad was the star. And yeah. it was called uh, Moon on a Rainbow Shawl by mm. Errol Hill. And it was Jamaican. So I dug up Jamaican plays. I dug up African <laughs> plays. And the class, that group would say, where did you get these plays? They were about to graduate. Right. How come you know these? Because up until that time, what they'd been working on were the classics. Yes. Mr. Dodson, who founded the department, brilliant man, was the first Black student to go to Yale School of Drama. Yes. He came out with a classical background. So he had them all doing the classics. He would sometimes adapt the classics. Right. Antigone in Africa, etc. Yes. But that's but I came along and I said, I gotta find some black material here. I right? Yeah. Plus, of course, I read a lot Lerone Bennett, I read a lot of history. Right. So I would salt and pepper my classes with, you know, uh, you know, uh, with with a statement about the talented tenth, and they they look at me. So and that's Booker T. Washington, right? Yes. <laughs> wow. It's also uh, wait a minute. I, I never remember his name. Uh, French, uh, French name. W.E.B. Uh, du Bois. That's who it is. Yeah. W.E.D. Du Bois. Yeah. It's him. Yeah. And so I, I, I would throw those names out there and I would throw those quotes out there. And I would, right. so and I would go to school as I was driving, memorizing that Booker C. said, it's not where you come from, it's where you go to. And I was always mumbling these quotes to myself and I throw them into the middle of the class when it became appropriate. Right. And the Deavers started to tell other people, you need to take this woman. You need to do this. <laughs> okay. Wow. wow. So wow. those were my tools. You, that was the question you asked. Exactly. Exactly. And That's- I was for, fighting racial discrimination Every time they ask me those terrible questions. Right. Right. Amazing. Amazing. You, you've, you've truly illuminated me in this conversation. I had no idea. 32 years at Howard meant fighting those first 
what, seven, eight years to get that last 22 years. <laughs> that is what happened. Now, when I, when the book came out in April, the yes. whole first part of the book, which I didn't tell you, was is about me because right. Felicia told me, Felicia said, you've got to write about yourself, Vera. Exactly. You know, you've got to. They want to know who you are. Yes. So I wrote all of this about my father. Why do they hate the Jews so bad? And and I, I put in uh, the fact that I'd been fired twice. Mm. And the students who knew me for years couldn't get Oh, They didn't know that. I never brought it up. Right. 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 Now, then... After I was there for a while, all of a sudden, Howard was accused of being anti-Semitic. Mm. The whole university was accused of it. Mm. And Connie Chung, who at that time was a news reporter. I remember. Went, went on the news and talked about anti-Semitism at Howard and came down with cameras. And all of a sudden, the university found me. Ha! They were so happy to find me. What about that little woman in theater over there? <laughs> and they asked me questions. They didn't realize how these questions were also like, well, what about the other Jews on campus? Give, can you give us their names who you know who they are, who are teaching? I said, I'm in the theater department. I'm sitting there in the dark every night watching plays, watching. <laughs> I don't know who's Jewish. Who's Jewish on campus? Oh, you like they see, it's like they thought I would know we'd have a club. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. So they were disappointed in that about me. But I said, maybe they're over in political science. I don't know. Go look there. But they were so happy to have me. They put me on a poster. It's in the book about I was a leader, leadership and diversity. All Then the word diversity became, right? Yeah. And so I was the first person of leadership and diversity. Yes. But why did all this happen? The campus, and I kept saying, this is not an anti-Semitic campus. Right. Nobody has ever given me a hard time for being Jewish. Mm -hmm. And then I, I never did say, but certainly for being white. I never did say that. Wow. So um, that was because, let me tell you why they were accused. Malik Shabazz, who was running in D.C. for the district council. Yes. Was a protege of Farrakhan's. Oh. And he came and he had been invited by student leadership on Howard to come to Blackburn Center, which is the major student building and speak one night. And of course he wanted to win, so he riled them up. And he led them, he led them in an anti-Semitic call and response. What? Who's the reason for our problems? The Jews, the Jews. Oh my God. Who's taking all our money? The Jews, the Jews. Now that's when I finally came out of the closet. Yeah, yeah. That's when I went to class the next day. I read about this in the paper in the morning. Yeah. And I said, oh, my God, I have to talk about this. Exactly. So I went to class and I said, and I brought it up. I said, um, where, where did you go to Blackburn Center last night? 
oh no, but my girlfriend did. Okay, and blah, blah. And I started very nicely moving into it. Mm -hmm. And then I said, you know, my ancestors, because I know how important that is to you all. You see, that's what I learned there. You reframe it. It's in my book. You reframe your persecution to the person you're talking to. Yes. So the ancestors were disrespected, I said. Mm. And they got that immediately. What? Why, Professor Katz? What happened? They were very upset. Wow. So I, I then I explained. And then here's what they said. <laughs> but we love you. You are such a good teacher, and you're so fair, and you make it so clear. But we didn't know you were Jewish. Wow. Does that mean you don't believe in Christ? That's the biggie. Mm. And I was always prepared for that one. (laughs) Well, because on the black campus, you hear so much about Christ. Exactly. I said, well, he was a very brilliant man. And he said so many things that I agree with and that I read and and pray over. Um, But we don't believe he was the son of God. Nevertheless, he was a very good person. At which point, but you're such a good person. How come, and it was their first understanding, that somebody could be good who doesn't believe in Christ? Yes. I said, well, my religion believes in good, and my religion was believes in do unto others, and and at the end of the hour, they all came up and hugged me. They wanted to hug me. Okay, now, wow. fast forward to the cafeteria, or yes. I wasn't, mm-hmm. and Stephen Holmes of the New York Times is running around in the cafeteria interviewing right. people to, about anti-Semitism. Are you serious? And somebody says... That just feels inappropriate. I, I, this feels inappropriate. I'm sorry, go ahead. And somebody <laughs> says... Oh, my teacher talked about that today in acting class. <laughs> Who's your teacher? And he writes a little blurb about me in the New York Times. He doesn't interview me, but he writes a blurb. Mm. My son, who's in Connecticut, lives in Connecticut, calls me up and says, Mom, you're in the Times today. I said, what are you talking about? He says, yeah, there's a blurb here about you. And you said Jewish people understand and have been persecuted blah and he's reading to me says hey ma you did pretty good i'm proud of you and i thought oh my god it's in the times well then the next day i open up the washington post and now i'm having a senior moment oh my god what's his name a very famous writer Uh who did a lot of music reviews and who intimately knew black jazz musicians. Oh, okay. Not Not Eugene Robinson. Okay. No, not Felix Grant either. All right. Wait a minute. I'll, I should have looked it up. No worries. Um, Anyway, he wrote a whole editorial about what happened at Blackburn center. What? He quoted what happened. 
he quoted and what Shabazz took them through. Right. And then the last paragraph was, and Vera Katz, a teacher, a theater teacher at Howard University, led her her students in a discussion, a respected teacher, led her students in a discussion about the similarities between Jews and African-Americans. Yes. And more, and then he ends up with some line, more people should stand up for who they are, or something like that. Right. So that was a whole editorial. Wow. Well, the Washington Post loved that. Uh, not the Washington Post. Howard loved it. Because a positive story. Yay. <laughs> and it was a little cat's woman over there in that crazy theater department. You know? <laughs> so that's how that went down. Wow. So wow. then I was I was notorious, you know, like Biggie or Ruth Bader Ginsburg. For a while, I was notorious. Oh, there's there comes cats across the campus. Wow. Now, when you say humility, it was like, wow, after all of this, listen, I, I, I didn't tell you that the first the first year I was there, my tires were slashed, my car windows were broken. Oh no. I never complained. Do you know why? Mm. I didn't complain because if I would complain, I would be this person who was always giving the administration problems and I wanted to stay. Right. So I never, I never even talked about it. Wow. Uh, I just got, you know, okay. Now, uh, um, people were angry. And I understood anger. I really did. Mm. So anyway, those were the first maybe seven years. I used to want to buy a bean pie, you know. <laughs> from, the, from the Nation of Islam? <laughs> from the Nation of Islam. And every time I went out to buy it, with my little $3 tucked in my hand, they mm. wouldn't. they would turn away. So one day I said to one of my favorite students, would you go out and buy that bean here? I, and I didn't tell him why. I just yeah. said, I can't, I'm too busy. Would you? And here's my $3. So, you know, that's the way it was. Wow. But, wow. you know, we have to assume, we have to assume that the, the way to deal with persecution is is not to slam dunk it like that's why you know you don't want to go in and riot and st and steal clothing in stores and people know that right that's not the way to do it there are better ways to do it you know yes yes professor right. Katz. yeah yeah you know every episode has a a label that that evolves from the conversation uh knowing that you had your window smashed in your car had your tires slashed in your car you were fired twice <laughs> and you stayed nevertheless because you wanted both the opportunity to teach and to learn over the course then that happened of, of decades I'm going to call this episode Grit to Endure. 
(laughs) (laughs) Because you've demonstrated the grit to persist in your role as professor and not complain about it. I mean, that's- But TJ, TJ, look at the things that I witnessed that I would never have known that were much worse than when I went through. There was Diamond who came to class. No, she didn't come to class. And I kept saying, where's Diamond? And they said, Diamond's brother was killed last night. Mm. And I said, oh, my God. We have to go to the funeral. Mm. Let's class. Let's go to the funeral. And some of them said, we can't. And some of them said, we'll go. And I went to the funeral. Mm. And I sat up there in the church, all the way to the church pew, all the way upstairs in the balcony. Mm-hmm. And I watched, I watched a family bereft of their son. Mm. That's much worse than what I went through. Mm. I mean, it's relative. I that that was me learning. Wow. In sitting in my safe little white world, would I have gone to a black funeral and seen that kind of pain and grief? Mm. Um, I. Other, I learned other things. Uh, I called the art teacher's son a boy. <laughs> and I said, oh, you know, I met your boy the, the other day. Did he get on the football team in high school? He mm-hmm. was really eager to do that. And the art teacher looked at me, pulled himself up to his, and of course was dressed at that period. Everybody was dressed in, in the, when I went there in the, early 70s, everybody was dressed in African robes. That was the period, you know, it was Pan-African, right? The the Shikis, yeah. Mm -hmm. And he pulled himself up in his robes and his his hat, and he said, what was the name of the hat, a kufi? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he pulled, and he said, I don't have a boy. And he left. And I said to somebody who was standing in the hall, what exactly, what just happened here? What what happened? Yeah. And she said, oh, you called his son a boy. Yeah. And that's a term from enslavement. Exactly. Derogatory, yeah. Yeah. We we don't know those things. I didn't know that. Yeah. I wrote him an apology note. He, He came downstairs with the note in his hand, and he said, thank you. And he said, "We're. I guess we're all learning. That's what he said. Yeah. That was a beautiful moment when he said, I guess we're all learning. Right. I went home and cried about that. Would I have experienced that if I decided that I was going to leave because I didn't like what somebody, you know what I mean? Yes. Would I have experienced these children hugging me and telling me they loved me because I was a good teacher, even mm. though they met someone who was different? Right. Now, to fast forward that story to graduation. And there I am marching down the aisle in my robes because you had to do that at every Howard graduation as a faculty. And one person is reaching out to me and she's somebody's auntie. And she says, oh, you must be Professor Katz while I'm going down the aisle. And I said, yes. She says, oh, I'm I'm Clarissa's auntie. God bless you. You she's the first person who's graduated from college. in our family." (laughs) Wow. Would I have had that was that was a blessing to me. Yes. And yes. I was able to say, oh, she's very smart and a lovely girl. 
I'll see you later and march down the aisle. (laughs) And that would happen graduation after graduation. Amazing. And I knew I was doing something, doing something that was very important to help them graduate the first in their large family. Right. Right. Those were seminal years. Amazing. Amazing. I would have missed all that, TJ. Yes. Because I was upset that my tire was slashed. Well, yes, it was upsetting and I had to buy a new tire and it cost money. But at the same time, look what I was learning. Right. Right. The rewards were great. Yes. I end the book with a love note to my students. Yeah. Because the rewards were great. Just great. Mm. And I would not have gotten any of that. I would have been less rich inside. Mm. When you stay in your own community, you miss a lot. Yes. You've got to move out of your own community. It's safe there. Right. But you've got to move out of it, maybe not in a big way as I did. Mm Mm-hmm. And I wasn't thinking of it that way. I was thinking about theater. But what you learn is invaluable when you move out of your community. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you know that. Absolutely. And and I find that people who don't know that, I mean, when a Felicia asks me a question like, you've got to explain who you are, Vera. People want to know. She's saying she doesn't quite even though she knows me, are you following? Right, right. Yes, yes. Because to have a white teacher, what do you do with that? My acting teacher? When (laughs) Chadwick Boseman died. Yes. People were very confused about what to do about him having a white acting teacher. And I was not asked to be interviewed in a lot of situations. Mm. But other people who taught him later were. Right. You know, and we have to get beyond that one. Yes. Yes. What was your fondest memory of of Chadwick Boseman? Oh, my God. He was so smart. He. He he came well. He came into the department. He was already well read. He was also steeped in his culture and his history. Yet, along with that, and I say yet, not but. He was interested in other cultures and histories. Yes. Now I had taught other smart students. They were only interested in. Blackness. Yes. We're going to talk about Pinter. Pinter? Harold Pinter? Harold Pinter, yeah. British playwright. Love him. Yes. We're going to talk about that today. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I get. And I'd say, well, if you're going to be a director, you have to understand the theater of absurd. Right. And, you know, I try to say, this is relevant to you because racism in this country is absurd, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So I try to make it, you know, which was true. Yeah, But I get a lot of, oh, God. He came to me and said, when are we going to deal with Brecht and Pinter? 
he came to me and said that to me. Wow. That was the difference. Now, every day in his family, they would pray. So he was very grounded in who he was. Mm. And he didn't need to be. He was. He was. He just didn't need to be. Right. And it would come out of his mouth at the appropriate time what he knew about Pan-Africa and what he knew about black people. Right. Yet he, yet he wanted to because he knew he needed to understand all of that other stuff. Right. So from the beginning, I was, and then he, he was lovely to look at, and then he was warm and caring of other people in the class. For example, when I say to a student, well, now all you're doing is regurgitating what Mr. Bozeman said. Can you come up with your own thoughts or find another way to put it? <laughs> then Chadwick would say, he would come to defense his immediately. He mm -hmm. would say, well, I think what he meant, Professor, was, <laughs> and he'd translate it. <laughs> always trying to help the other person. Always, always. A generous soul. Very. Wow. And, and he was already, you talk about humility, it was already in the department going up fast, and he had humility. Mm. You know? The girls were all around him. He, soon he had a girlfriend. And, and he, was, he was also, see, he was reaching out to the political science department. When, when he came to speak at the, um, at the commencement exercise, he said, there are three teachers I want to thank. I never heard of the other two. The third was Vera Katz. But I never heard of the other two. Well, one was in political science, and, and one was over in, in um, uh, early education. Right. Because that's who he was. Yes. That was not true of a lot of other students. And I don't know how he managed it time-wise, because we kept them so busy. Right. But he did. Wow. So that was Chadwick. That yep. was Chadwick. Wow. Wow. Professor Katz, um, this has been I, a life-altering, magnificent conversation. Uh, thank you so much for imparting both your wisdom, your coping skills, um, how you uh, demonstrated grit uh, throughout your storied career. Um, what parting words do you have for our audience uh, on what it means uh, to overcome? Well, I, I don't want the audience to only think uh, about this interview as me telling all the bad things. There's a lot of good, I, I hope that the people watching will know that there's a lot of good that comes out of teaching at an HBCU. I yes. am so proud of teaching at an HBCU. Yes. Uh, of having taught there. I'm so proud of having taught at Duke Ellington. Wow. I'm so proud of meeting and learning so much about the, your culture, mm. your history, the contributions that your people have made to America. Yes. Uh, I, I, I feel that it's filled me up and it's helped me learn and it's helped me, uh, be aware of, of 
how to cope with with even even with anti-Semitism. It's learned me not how not to be so angry, but how to work through it. Yes. And that's what we have to do when we're of color. We have to work through it. Right. And we have to bring others along the way I've been brought along right. to learn and to understand. Yes. Um, and so it's been a good journey. Yes. And then I've gotten such joy. I just came back from New York and I watched Corey Hawkins in Top Dog, Underdog. Amazing. He was a student at Ellington. Yes. I encouraged him to go to Juilliard. Wow. Pushed him very hard. Wow. The, I'm, I'm very hard on those that I see have great potential. Mm. And the joy I got from watching him. And, and here's another part of that story. Because he's so good in this piece, it's rumored he may be up for a Tony. I certainly hope so. But because he's so good in this piece, he it, it's, a, it's a drama with only two characters in Wow. He has brought his people, the reputation that this show has, has brought his people to come and see and sit in the orchestra over $100 on a Broadway show. Wow. I've never seen so many black people yes. in the audience paying that kind of money to a non-musical. Yes. It's not Tina Turner. It's right. not Michael Jackson. Exactly. It's not Janet Jackson. Right. It's a serious talk, talking, only talking, no music in it. Mm. Through black males. Right. And the audience was thrilled and excited. And that's the result. Let's go back there. That's tra trace it backwards. That's the result of it getting good word of mouth right. and good reviews. Right. And it wouldn't have gotten it if it wasn't because the two black actors were wonderful, one of which is my my student. Yes. So I've had a hand in that. Yes. And this Yiddish word, nachis. Nachis means what joy, what fill up, like when your third child was born. What nachis. How, how else could I get that nachis? Mm. I'm on stage. He is. But look what he's done for his community. And right. indirectly, I've done it for his community. Yes. Now that's Nakis. That's Nakis. And, <laughs> and that's what, as a Jew, I was raised to do bring Nakis to the community. Mm. So, why worry about a slash tire? This is so much bigger. Right. Right. That's what I want the audience to get. Amazing. And whatever they do, if they can bring joy to, and, and a future to whatever work they're doing to right. one person or two people or three. Oh my God, you've been blessed. You've yes. been blessed by God. Yeah. This is Professor Vera J. Katz and you have been watching Grit for the Day. Grit for the Day. 
lived experience from influencers who overcome with CEO and founder Thomas Lee Johnson.